Thank you. That psalm is a retelling of the time when the Hebrew people were in the wilderness between the escape from Egypt and the coming into the promised land. It's a well-known story, and here the psalmist goes over it once again. And it begins with a theme that runs throughout that entire wilderness time, the theme of complaining. The Hebrew people once again were saying they didn't like where they were in life. Now, there's some reason for that. I mean, these were, remember, city people. They had been, now it's usually said slaves in Egypt. The workers in Egypt, especially those who worked on government projects, were well-treated. They'd have had a home. They'd have had food. There had been a co-op at the corner to buy food in. They were relatively clean. Egypt is known as one of the cleanest of the ancient civilizations. They had all this, and now, led out into freedom, they were, they were out here in the middle of Sinai, with very, very little. I mean, they would have had their goats were with them. They'd have been able to pick some. There's, it's not a complete desert. There are some plants you could have eaten. And every once in a while, they hid an oasis where they could have bought a little bit of grain and oil to take with them. But basically, the uh, diet was goat and greens, or greens and goat, or goat and greens and goat. It's sort of like a Monty Python spam sketch. You know, it, was just, it was boring. And then they complained. They said, you know, remember back there in Egypt? We had new food every day. It was fresh. It was right. They grew it right there. And here we are struggling away in the, in the desert. What a horrible place. And then, and the story recalls this, God sent them food. God sent them meat to eat. Now, the meat was quails. And uh, that's always interesting. This is actually a picture uh, from about that period with quails in a net, which isn't how we think about getting quails. But what would have happened in the Sinai if quails came? They were being blown off course. Notice that it says the great wind came. So the quails were being blown off course into the Sinai, by which time they were exhausted. And they would literally fall on the ground. And this still happens. This isn't a theory. And the native peoples know enough to take big Nets, throw them over the quails, and they'd get them just like this. So this was wonderful. You know, we've been eating goat now for six months. And look at this quail time. I don't know how big the quails were, but it was better than that. Now, the other thing they had to eat, according to the story in, in uh, Exodus and in Numbers, is they had manna. Now, it's a weird word uh, that we're told in Exodus that uh, when the Israelites first saw manna, they said to each other, what is it? Now, that doesn't seem too funny for you, but in Hebrew, uh, what is it would be manhu. So, manna, what is it? We don't know. It was it was a fine, flaky substance. Um, it was like frost on the ground, and rabbis and scholars throughout the years have been trying to decide what the manna was. I mean, we know what quails are, and we know why they would be there, and it makes perfect good sense. But manna, a little bit harder. Now, first, simplest answer, it was something God produced and put on the ground. Okay. Uh, the worst answer that I found this week was it was uh, kosher grasshoppers. Now, I have no <laughs> earthly idea what a kosher grasshopper is, but anyway, that, that some rabbi has said that's what it was. They were just grasshoppers uh, because that's why they were looked upon as, as edible, and they also would give them protein. Um, the other is uh, lichen that grew on rocks. Again, today, the nomadic people still scrape off the lichen and use it as a flower. So... Maybe that was it. it was, miraculously, they got into an area with, with uh, lichen on the rocks. Uh, insect scales, it's getting tastier and tastier as we move on. 
secretion from the aphids on tamarisk trees. Now, this action, knock it till you try it. I haven't, <laughs> and I'm not going to. Uh, but this is still collected by the desert people. They call it manna. Ooh. And it, it's like a, um, like a syrup. It would be like maple syrup. It certainly wouldn't be a sustaining food, but it, you know, you could at least put it on the goat and the greens to make, the, make it a bit different. Um, the more substantial idea is they were coons of the, uh, cocoons of the parasitic beetle, Trahalamana. What's the name? Interesting. And this, uh, this, these cocoons are actually very nourishing. They're 30% trihalose, and it's a crystalline carbohydrate that's actually sweet. Not as sweet as sugar, but it would be sweet, and it also contained protein. And, and this really gives some credence to it, in New York City, there are still some restaurants that serve these cocoons. I don't know how. And they call them manna. You can come here and taste what manna is like. So next visit to New York City, there's something you can avoid. Um, <laughs> thing is, we don't know what manna was. But we do know that at this point, the Israelites who had been so discouraged and felt that God was just treating them badly, suddenly went again, wow, God is with us. We have something different to eat, and, and it's good. Perhaps the real miracle here is what was actually happening is the Hebrew people were becoming wildernessized. They were becoming nomads. They were leaving behind the ways, and they were beginning to understand the country in which they found themselves and to find the resources that were there. People lived in that wilderness. As they say, it isn't the Sahara Desert we're talking about. It's a very rough and rugged area, but there are trees, there are plants, there are oases. You can do it. It, it happens. So here we have the psalmist looking back on this event from so many years before. And although the story is familiar, the psalmist gives it a really strange twist. But before I tell you about the really strange twist, I'm going to tell you another story. Now, this story is probably better known than the Hebrew story because I think ministers in the United Church, those in paid accountable ministry, have to put this story in a sermon about every 10 years. So here it is for me. This is, this is the story. And if you've heard it before, smile. Exactly. Just keep the smile right there. You've, you've heard it. And it's about a minister giving a children's story. And he has all the young people, as we often do up here, you know, sitting around him. And he said, well, and then, and this is the highlight of the story, something big and black came out of the forest and chased Johnny up the tree. And the children all gasped. And then he said, and boys and girls, what do you think it was that came out of the forest? And the little girl at the back put up her hand, looking totally bored. And he said, yes, Christine, what do you think? And she said, it's Jesus. It's it's always Jesus, you know, this is how every story ends. Yeah, we know. Now, I don't want to denigrate my co-workers and myself, but I must admit, at times we do get rather theatrical in our telling of biblical stories. You already know the conclusion. You already know what's going to happen. We build it up as if this is going to be totally unexpected. You know, David and Goliath. Here we have the poor, helpless David with nothing but his slingshot. And here we have the fearsome, tall, strong warrior, Goliath. What do you think is going to happen? David's going to win. David always wins. And Paul went into the city and preached, and the Roman authorities were angry. And what do you think happened? They put Paul in prison. They always put Paul in prison. Yeah. And that's, I think, the attitude with which most of us come to a psalm like this. You know, what's going to happen when the people complain? And this is how the psalm unravels it, and it really is well done. 
Yet they sinned still more against God, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. All right, there's the setup. Israelites, desert, complaining. They did this all the time. Therefore, hearing this, God was full of rage. A fire was kindled against Jacob. God's anger mounted against Israel because they had no faith in God and did not trust God's saving power. Now, there it is, exactly what we expect, and we all know what the next verse is going to be. You know, God is angry, and now the smiting is going to begin. You know, there'll be fire come down from heaven, and hailstones, and hippopotamuses, and, you know, they're going to be smitten and smut and smote and wiped off the face of the earth. This is now what's going to happen. So, God's anger mounted against Israel because they had no faith in God and did not trust in God's saving power. Yet... God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven. God called, caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by divine power led out the south wind. God rained flesh upon them like dust, winged birds like the, sea, like the sands of the seas. And they ate and were well filled, for God gave them what they craved." Oh, not what you expected. You know, the people rebelled against God, the people turned against God, the people complained about God, and God said, okay, if that's what you want, you've got it, you're fed, you're happy. And it's a wonderful, as I say, twist in the story. And we must keep in mind as we read this psalm, this really isn't as much about what happened to the ancient Hebrews in the wilderness. It was more about what was happening to the people at the time the psalmist wrote. You're complaining. You're saying God has forgotten you. Look around you. God is giving you good gifts. Yes, you can list off all the things that are happening right now that aren't good. And often we make long lists. Look at the world. Look at the state it's in. But he said, but God is with you. Remember, up to this point, by the way, in the wilderness, God had saved them again and again. He led them out of Egypt. God gave them water. It goes on and on. And they kept complaining. And God just kept being generous. In fact, we still do it in our lives. You know, we, we look at the world and we spend a great deal of time complaining about what's happened. Look at this. Look at that. She's sick. The country is falling apart here. We're having to face this in this situation. Uh, my mortgage is due next month. Whatever it is. And we love to find someone to blame, and especially if it happens to be God. And we rather forget that God continues to help. The time in the wilderness was a difficult time for the Hebrew people. There is no doubt about it, that they were in a world they did not know, living a life they were not accustomed to, going to a land that they didn't even know much about. But God was with them in the process forever. And in fact, looking back on it, the Hebrew people realized that it was during that time in the wilderness that they actually became a people. The law arose during that time. Their faith was strengthened during that time. Their sense of identity was crystallized during that time. Time of stress, time of problems, but good things were happening. And so throughout history. So today, a time of stress, a time of problems, a time that is difficult and threatening, there's, there's no doubt about that, but also 
a time of wonder and change and renewal. So the reality is that often, because we spend so much time trying to find ways that the world is miserable, that we do actually miss seeing the goodness that God is giving to us. Because remember, it's not as much what happens around us, but how we respond to it. It's not as much what happens around us, it's how we respond to it. A couple of weeks ago, when I was here, I went home Long Anderson and up 14th. Anyone take that route home? Yeah, you like to avoid it. See, you people are much smarter than I am. See, you should write that when people are coming. Do not take Well, that was the day they were moving the stoplights at the corner of uh, uh, Southland and 14th. And, of course, once you've turned on to 14th, you're committed. I mean, there's no other place to go. And I sat there, and I texted my family and said, well, forget lunch, but maybe I'll make it home for supper. I don't know, but uh, I'm, I'm here. And you see there, I can quite, look at what God's stuck me with here. You know, I'm, I'm in this miserable situation. I've got nothing to do. No, I had lots to do. I've got a play that's going to be opening next season, and they want to rewrite on one of the scenes. It was practically rewritten by the time the traffic got moving. I mean, that's, but that, that's life, you see. We, we have that choice of either finding someone to blame, and where it's so easy to do. You know, we, in fact, it's our first instinct when something goes wrong. Who is to blame? Look, if you hadn't left that bowl on the side of the counter, I wouldn't have knocked it off. Rather than, oh, I've knocked off the bowl, I guess you have to clean it up, you know. Or if you had been at that meeting, we'd have passed the motion, but you weren't there, so we lost it. Rather than, well, we'll have to deal with the situation. Next time, maybe it'll go through. Always that choice. We can look, as the Hebrew people tended to do, at the world and complain, or we can look at the world and say, okay, this is where we are right now. Where are we going? How do we take our faith that we say we have, how do we take the presence of God that we say is with us and grow and learn in this situation? And sometimes we don't see this goodness of God just because we absolutely refuse to. We almost get caught up in a culture of blame, a culture of misery, and love to say, uh, how are you? Well, I'll tell you who I am. Uh, I heard a story about told two years ago. I didn't actually know the two people involved, but I heard from two sources what was going on. It was a magnificent difference. The first was I met someone who was worried about her neighbor. She said, you know, Mrs. Smith, she's been in that house for 40 years. Her husband's died, and she is really struggling. You know, she, uh, we watch her out. She's still out in the garden there working away. It takes her an hour to do one bed, you know, struggling with every stroke of her wrist. She still walks over to co-op and gets her food. It's just, it's very, very difficult to see her suffer like that. And you know what? She's got a son. He lives about 10 minutes away. We never see him. You know, where's he? His mother's here. His mother's struggling. Why can't he get together with her and, and make a change in her life? About, oh, a month after that, I met another person who knew the family, who knew the son. And he was saying, yeah, we've, we know them. And he said, you know, Jack's been trying to get his mother to move out of that house now for five years. He offers to do gardening for her, and she absolutely refuses. Because, she, you know, this is my house. I will do the gardening. He offers to take her every Saturday. He said, Mom, we're going over to Costco. Come with us. We'll push the cart for you. You can pick out what you want, or just give us a list, and we'll buy it for you. No, I, you know, I can take care of it myself. Huh, see? Same situation. 
But sometimes that happens to us. People offer us help. People offer to do things for us. You know, we decided the meeting. Okay, you're having trouble with this. Look at uh, Bill and Bruce. They'll they'll help you out with this. And then we we never call them because well, you know, this is my job, and I'm just going to do it. And I'll complain at the next meeting that nobody ever helps me because this is the way this is the way I have. And that can become a way of living. As Christians, we meet every week as community, not because we just like the coffee and the cookies. Well, all right. You and you. Yeah, I know that's why you come. But the rest of us are here for something, for something better, something bigger. This is your help group. You, know, you mentioned the prayers earlier, Wilma. I mean, this is, this is what we do. This is how we treat the world. And when the help comes to you, I can just see, you know, I'm sure there were some of uh, the people when the manna came. I'm not eating that. You know, oh, we asked for food, but it's not the food I wanted. You know, I don't like this menu. No, God is helping. God is urging. And, and Maybe talk more about this next week, but often the way God urges is things we don't like. And finally, I think sometimes we miss seeing God's goodness. We miss seeing the quails and the manna. We miss understanding that God is helping us simply because we're looking for that better thing somewhere in the future. You know, God's, uh, yeah, God's going to help me. You know, I'll, I'll get over this and I'll be all right. And, you know, it's going to be fine. And, and uh, someday in the sweet by and by, you know, everything's going to be okay. And people are standing around you going, we're here now. I think of uh, Leonard Cohen's song. Probably quite later, but not right now. No, but there you Baby, I've been waiting, I've been waiting night and day. I didn't see the time. I waited half my life away. We're waiting. Something's going to change. Yeah, I think it will. I'm not doing anything, but something will. There were lots of invitations, and I know you sent me some, but I was waiting for the miracle for the miracle to come. When you've fallen on the highway and you're lying in the rain and they ask you how you're doing, of course you'll say you can't complain. If you're squeezed for information, that's when you've got to play it dumb. You just say you're out there waiting for the miracle, for the miracle to come. The miracle has come in Christ. The miracle has come here and now. The quails, the manna, what it is we really need to get through whatever the problems are, God is providing. It's a matter of opening ourselves to look around, to listen, to reach out, to actually ask someone, I need help with this, could you do it? And to see the resources that are there. God provides, and God continues to provide for us. God continues to be with us, feeding us. Communion. That's Jesus' central main right he left his followers. And it's the very essence of what we've been talking about today. The bread, the wine, the manna, the quail. What we need, God gives. We eat together, reminding us that we're community. We eat as the body as the people of Christ. And today I would invite all of you to please, in a moment, join with us. Uh, there are no boundaries here because this is God's meal, this is Christ's meal, it's not ours. We simply open it and say, join with us, taste what's good, think of what's wonderful, become a part of what God is doing in our world.